Welcome to Law 217 at Charles Sturt University, Civil Procedure. This subject aims to provide an introduction to the study of civil procedure with a specific focus on the courts of New South Wales. We'll also be looking at the federal jurisdiction, the High Court and the federal courts, and we will touch on courts in other jurisdictions. In this short podcast, we'll be talking about a number of concepts that are important to understand in your introductory topic, topic one. The podcast is no substitute for undertaking the prescribed readings in your textbook and also working through the learning activities contained in the online topic in your subject site. So today we're going to have a talk about adversarial as against inquisitorial models. We're going to consider, well, what is the law of civil procedure and where do these laws come from? We'll consider what inherent power of the superior courts is, and we'll consider the difference between procedural law and substantive law. We'll touch on court hierarchy, and then we'll consider the principles of open justice and the right to a fair hearing. So let's talk about the type of system we have in Australia. The Australian common law system is premised on an adversarial system of law. This means that when people go to court, it's usually two or more parties who are in dispute with each other, each presenting their case. In this model, the court impartially adjudicates the disputes. It relies on the rules of evidence and questions of what evidence is and is not admissible. And the court will then determine what facts are proven by the parties or not proven, and therefore make a ruling on what relief ought to be given. The court's role in an adversarial system is somewhat passive. It's neutral and it's almost like a spectator or an adjudicator. The judicial officer is charged with ensuring procedural fairness in the presenting of each party's case and they are to remain neutral until he or she makes a finding for one party or the other. The court is not charged with the job of getting to the truth or fact-finding but rather adjudicating what on what evidence is put before it by the represented parties. Inquisitorial models, however, work quite differently. These systems of law, usually in civil law countries, see the court exercising a much more active role. Countries such as France, Italy and Saudi Arabia have inquisitorial models, and it places the role of the court as a fact finder and a questioner, as well as an adjudicator. Well, what is the law of civil procedure and where do these laws come from? The vast majority of litigation that occurs in Australia is in fact civil litigation. Whether it's a family law dispute, an employment issue, a breach of contract or a tenancy agreement, this is all characterised as civil disputes. The rules of civil procedure are those laws that govern how we use the courts and tribunals those rules that guide litigation and dispute resolution. The rationale behind having rules that govern how courts are used and prescribe procedures is actually a fundamental tenet of the rule of law, the idea that all are equal before the eyes of the law and that justice must be applied consistently, equally and fairly to all people. Procedural law determines the forum, the mode and the manner in which each party pursues their legal rights in the various Australian courts. Where do the laws that make up civil procedure come from? Well, these rules are diverse. They come from legislation, namely the Civil Procedure Act, the Executive, particularly the Attorney General, 
and subordinate legislation such as the civil procedure rules and those rules and practice notes that are specifically given by the courts, part of the court's inherent power or powers granted to the court under legislation. In that regard, those types of procedural rules, which are by and large the day-to-day -day operations of the court, are created by judicial committees and panels. Then, of course, we have common law, the cases that interpret and apply the civil procedure rules to particular problems or scenarios. So you'll be working quite a lot with a lot of legislation, subordinate legislation, and then also the cases that interpret these. In New South Wales, the most important source of law for civil procedure is the Civil Procedure Acts, Act and Rules. We will be considering that legislation in some detail as we move through the subject. Take a moment to familiarise yourself with the Act and the Civil Procedure Rules. Have a look at the definitions and the overriding purpose provisions in Section 56. It will become an old friend to you by the time you finish your studies in this subject. The Uniform Civil Procedure Law, as the name suggests, was an effort to try and obtain some consistency at a national level for legal practice across Australia in civil procedure. This legislation has had varied success, not being adopted in all jurisdictions. And there are significant variations, unfortunately, between the various jurisdictions in Australia. It's important you're aware of this. And in this subject, we'll be mostly focusing on the courts of New South Wales. But I encourage you to also look up equivalent provisions and consider those that apply in the jurisdiction that you intend to practice in. Your textbook is very good at covering the other jurisdictions also, so that you will be aware where to look. What about inherent power? Well, in addition to the legislative laws and rules that are conferred on the courts, we need to be aware that the superior courts in each jurisdiction, namely the Supreme Courts, have what we call inherent power. Your text defines this as a type of intrinsic power that the court has in its own right, in addition to those powers conferred on the court by Parliament through legislation. Inherent power is in a legal sense, meaning a right or a privilege that vests in the court without being conferred by legislation. The inherent power of the court means that the court is able to make its own procedures and rules through practice directions, etc. And it may punish summarily those for contempt who fail to adhere to those rules. Inherent power also means that the court retains a disciplinary aspect. Those parties disobeying the court's rules are liable to be found in contempt and disciplined accordingly. Now, an example to give you a good idea of what inherent power looks like can be contempt when a party does not obey a court order and therefore is arrested. Or if we think about the Supreme Court of New South Wales, it has inherent power over the supervision and discipline of solicitors who are admitted to legal practice by the court as its officers. The court may, on its own motion or an application of any party, disqualify a legal practitioner from appearing in a matter because the practitioner is conflicted, is not independent, or because the administration of justice requires that they not act. And the court can make this decision and rule accordingly. Have a look at the case of Kalinikos and Hunt of 1995 in the New South Wales Law Reports. Other courts, such as the district and local courts, have only incidental power. They do not have inherent power like the Supreme Court, but they only have those powers that are granted to them by legislation. 
These legislative instruments also authorise those courts to make certain procedural rules, and they do so, again in practice notes and rules, to ensure that a just outcome and fair trial occurs. Most matters that appear before our courts are party-led, with each side often having legal representation. Not always, but mostly. However, some matters, like urgent orders, seeking injunctions or interlocutory matters, will be dealt with on an ex parte basis, which means that the court has been moved by only one party in the absence of the other party to make urgent orders. Usually this is an interlocutory step before a final hearing, and there are very strict rules to ensure procedural fairness and to make sure that the court has all of the information before it before making such orders in the absence of one party. So what's the difference between procedural law and substantive law? Frequently you'll see in your textbook and in any material you read about civil procedure, authors state that civil procedure law is procedural, not substantive. By this they mean that the rules and laws that govern how justice is served affect the manner in which litigation is conducted, rather than determining the actual legal rights or issues between the parties. That type of law we call substantive law. So for example, the law of torts determines that under the Civil Liability Act and the common law of negligence, I have a legal right against an occupier if I slip and fall in their premises due to negligence. How I pursue my legal right to obtain a remedy, namely damages, which court and by what legal process and what evidence I must use to support my claim are all procedural law. However, the distinction between procedural law and substantive law, I would argue, is not always nice and neat. And the fact of the matter is that civil procedure law, when applied, can in fact affect the substantive legal rights of parties. For example, the rules of pleadings and requiring that solicitors certify that a reasonable cause of action exists and that evidence is available to support that cause of action means that certain parts of a party's claim may be struck out by the court under procedural rules and not determined at all. So here you can see the rules of civil procedure actually preventing the determination of substantive legal rights and whether these can be enforced. So civil procedure law is very important and it's also very powerful. But for the purposes of introduction, we often refer to procedural law as enabling law. It enables and facilitates how a party may enforce their substantive legal rights. Let's talk about court hierarchy. In this topic, we're also going to be considering court hierarchy. Generally, Australian jurisdictions comprise three tiers, the lower courts, intermediate courts, and one singular superior court. Each court has its own legislation that vests authority, but in addition to the superior courts have inherent jurisdiction. Being a federated country, we have nine different court jurisdictions when we take into account each state, territory, and the federal court hierarchy. Each jurisdiction has different courts and tribunals. As the Australian Parliament is created by our constitution, so too are its courts. The Commonwealth Parliament may only make laws concerning those areas it is authorised to do so under the Constitution. So too, the Commonwealth Courts are only able to adjudicate and determine civil disputes on those areas that the Constitution grants them power to 
or that Commonwealth legislation vests them with. An example is the Judicial Act 1903 or the Federal Court of Australia Act. In the Federal Court hierarchy, we have the High Court of Australia, the Federal Court, the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Law Court of Australia. And a very handy diagram mapping out the hierarchy is contained in Chapter 1 of your text. In the state jurisdiction, the states have jurisdiction to hear any matters unless its jurisdiction is removed by uh, legislation or where the Commonwealth may have exclusive jurisdiction over the matter. And that's only limited circumstances. In many instances, cross-vesting legislation that we will talk about next topic has actually transferred the bulk of civil proceedings to the jurisdiction of the state courts. In the states, under various acts of parliament, the courts hear those matters that legislation allows. The Supreme Court has jurisdiction to hear almost any matter. Have a look at section 23 of the Supreme Court Act, which provides that the court has jurisdiction as may be necessary to fulfil justice and the administration of justice in New South Wales. Other state level courts include the District Court of New South Wales, the Land and Environment Court of New South Wales and the Local Court. In addition to this are the tribunals such as the Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which is called NCAT in New South Wales. Most of the litigation conducted in the Supreme Court is civil litigation. 90% of cases in Australia are heard in state courts. We will consider each court's jurisdiction next topic but it's important to note the governing legislation constituting each court and giving it the right to make rules. This subject covers the procedures of those courts supplemented by the legislation, amendments and cases, practice notes and directions. In this way, as with all law, we'll appreciate that the law is constantly evolving and cases on civil procedure come out every week. This change is driven primarily by the overriding purpose of the just, quick and cheap resolution of the real issues in proceedings, section 56.1 of the Civil Procedure Act 2005. What about the principles of open justice and a right to a fair hearing? Not only must justice be done by the courts, but it has to be seen to be done. The principles of open justice is the idea that justice within our courts is open to the public and is transparent. This allows scrutiny and reporting on matters going on in court to the public, and it's a mechanism of accountability and checking of power on the judiciary. Scrutiny means that people may be vindicated, have their day in court, and that judges as unelected officials are held up to public consideration. If you're wondering how this works, try Googling Pat O'Shane in your web browser and read the Wikipedia page. Scroll down to academic criticism and you'll see how open court relates to judicial accountability. Or why not try looking up which judge of the New South Wales District Court resigned after reports of sleeping through hearings. Of course, the court does retain inherent power to remove people from the courtroom. But again, this is rarely exercised, and the court also has power to close the courts. Section 71 of the Civil Procedure Act allows the court to conduct certain proceedings in the absence of the public if it so chooses, but these are rare instances and often due to the nature of the proceedings before it being particularly delicate or having vulnerable parties. In such situations, the court can also order suppression of judgments, but these are rare. 
There are some instances where statutes restricted the right of the public to attend hearings in suppressing the name of the party. Often sexually based offences, such as crimes, where that has occurred and then subsequent civil proceedings follow, are the sorts of proceedings where this occurs. Uh, common law bases for granting such orders of preventing the court from being open and judgments reported was discussed in the judgment of Reinhardt and Welker, probably worth having a look at. Um, it should be noted, though, that generally speaking, the public is free to attend all courts in New South Wales and to watch those proceedings. The idea of a right to a fair hearing is a principle of the rule of law. It does not, however, exist as a right in Australian law, and we have no Bill of Rights. The right to a fair hearing is presumed to be created by the various checks and balances on power in a parliamentary common law system. Additionally, this right is articulated in Article 14 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which states that the right to a fair trial is a basic human right. Interestingly, that article actually refers implicitly to open justice. The covenant states, all persons shall be equal before the courts and tribunals in the determination of any criminal charge against him or of his rights and obligations in a suit of law, that means civil proceedings, everyone shall be entitled to a fair and public hearing by a competent, independent and impartial tribunal established by law. The press and the public may be excluded from all or part of a trial for reasons of morals, public order or national security in a democratic society, or when the interests of the private lives of the parties so require, or to the extent strictly necessary in the opinion of the court in special circumstances where publicity would prejudice the interests of justice. But any judgment rendered in a criminal case or a suit of law shall be made public, except where the interests of juvenile persons otherwise requires the proceedings concern matrimonial disputes or the guardianship of children. So you can see in that article the qualifications on open courts and open justice, but the general undergirding principle that justice should, justice should be transparent and accountable. It's important to remember that Australia has not effectively implemented the rights under the ICCPR. And so whilst we do uh, acknowledge that this is a really important principle and we do seek to strive for this in our justice system, it is by no means having the effect of law in Australia. The idea that everyone's equal before the law and has equal access to justice is a principle of the rule of law. But achieving this in reality can often be very challenging. Certainly, the overriding purpose provisions of Section 56, subsection 1 of the Civil Procedure Act aspires to make justice cheap, and Section 57 provides inter alia that efficient and cost-effective disposal of proceedings is the guiding principle. However, the reality may not reflect the aspiration. There is no legal aid available for civil litigation, and frequently, it is the most socially disadvantaged who cannot pursue their civil legal rights in civil courts of Australia. And this is the plain fact that for many Australians, pursuing their rights in civil proceedings is inaccessible, takes money, time and stamina to litigate. It also requires a specific amount of expertise and legal advice. It's a principle that Australian courts seek to achieve and address with the vast majority of court officers and administration striving to fulfil access to justice. 
but it is something that we have that is a problem in Australia. And as a graduate of CSU one day, hopefully you'll think about whether you can contribute to changing that. Just a final word on ethics. As we get to know each other in this subject, you'll soon discover the other area of law I'm quite passionate about is legal ethics. Ethics permeates much of civil procedure and ethical considerations both in common law and through the Australian Solicitor's Uniform Conduct Rules crop up frequently. I'll be highlighting this as we progress through the subject so you can start to see how each area of law is interrelated. For example, the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rule 21.1 requires solicitors not to invoke the coercive powers of the court, i.e. to obtain a court order, unless it's appropriate and reasonably justified on a correct view of the evidence in the client's case. Proceedings are not allowed to be used to harass, embarrass or intimidate a party. And therefore, we should not, whether we should commence proceedings or not, irrespective of what our client's instructing us to do, really matters. So as you can see, the idea of civil procedure and even when proceedings should or should not be commenced and maintained, not only has civil procedure rule implications, it has legal ethics implications as well. It's great when we start to join the dots between different areas of subjects that we've been studying throughout your law degree. In our weekly tutorial, we'll be working through these concepts together. Each week, we'll also be relating the readings that you're doing and the concepts you're learning about to your progressive assessment task, which is rolling out in different file notes applicable to each of the topics that we will cover. Thanks for listening.